0: Welcome to the show. This is Redis Block on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. My name is Jenny. On tonight's episode we have three guests, Wab Gish writes on his new book, Moon of the Turning Leaves, Adrian Adams, local poet and founder of Wolf's Voices reading series. And Said Asgarian, a co-director on the production with Downstage Theatre. Today, I'm speaking with Wab Gysheg-Rice about his new book, Moon of the Turning Leaves. So welcome, Wab.
1: Hi, Jenny. Thanks a lot for having me.
0: Okay. And so after the first novel, Moon of the Crested Snow, what made you want to write a sequel to the book?
1: It really was the readers of Moon of the Crested Snow who encouraged me to write a sequel. I hadn't even really thought of it. Uh, after I had written uh, the first book. But when I started getting feedback from people, they asked if I had a sequel in mind. And at first, uh, I would tell them no because, you know, it was being truthful and I hadn't really thought about that. And a lot of them were really disappointed to hear that. So I started thinking about it a little more and, you know, thought it might be a good idea to dream up what the next part of the story could be. And it was just something I thought of pretty casually, like, in the back of my mind for, you know, about a year or so. Uh, but uh, after, you know, about a year and a half of Moon of the Crest of Snow being out there, my agent, Denise Bukowski, really encouraged me to put a more formal pitch together. And she was pretty confident she'd be able to find a publisher for it. And that's when I really, you know, started dreaming up what would happen down the line, who would be in the story, you know, what the plot would be, and so on. So um, that uh, work started happening, I think, uh, more seriously in early 2020. And uh, yeah, now it's just come out.
0: And so you had uh, worked for a number of years for the CBC. So what led you to leave that job to focus on writing?
1: It was primarily the contract I signed to publish Moon of the Turning Leaves with uh, Penguin Random House Canada. I had a great career at CBC. I had a lot of really memorable opportunities that I think helped me grow as a storyteller and helped me learn a lot about uh, the world we live in. And I was fortunate enough to you know, have a few books published uh, by the time I had left. And my last job was really the best one that I had the whole time I was at CBC. I was the uh, host of the afternoon radio show for Northern Ontario, based here in Sudbury, called Up North. But all these things combined, I knew I I just would not be able to focus on writing a new novel while trying to work a full-time journalism job, right? Um so something had to give and I made the choice to end my daily jour- journalism career to focus primarily on writing fiction for the time being and I was really fortunate that it worked out you know my wife uh, has been very supportive you know we planned this out for many months in advance and I've been able to really fill that time with not just writing the sequel but doing a lot of other storytelling work and educational work and so on so um yeah i just feel uh really lucky that i've been able to make it work since leaving cbc
0: and so uh tell me about the community you have uh formed in the story uh, moon of the crested snow and what has changed from the first book without giving too much away of the first
1: book (laughs) yeah for sure uh well the community in the first book is uh uh, casually called the uh, Kong First Nation. And the people who live there, it's a uh, remote part of northern Ontario. Uh, the Anishinaabe people who comprise this community are originally from the Great Lakes, the north shore of Lake Huron. And through colonialism, they've been displaced from their homeland, and they were forced to move uh, several hundred kilometres to the north. Um, which is not unusual in actual Canadian history uh, that happened to several Indigenous nations uh, throughout this land we now call Canada. So this community is one that's you know, been pushed into uh, an unfamiliar homeland, uh, but they adapt and they are somewhat isolated. So when this blackout happens in the first story, they're a little more uh, adept in dealing with it because they know how to hunt and gather from the land and, you know, keep themselves warm and so on, right? Um, So that's their new reality in the aftermath of this blackout. Um, They find a way to survive and keep their culture and their customs alive and so on. Uh, So in the second book, it takes place 10 years after the end of the first book, uh, which is about 12 years after the initial blackout. And they've moved from their original reserve town to a new settlement that they've created uh, away in the bush. And they've been living there since, you know, um, the, the their world has ended, essentially, right? Um, since Canada has collapsed. And they have been stuck in this one place, and they realize that their natural resources around them are starting to dwindle. You know, they're, they're seeing uh, less uh, food come up from the ground. They're seeing fewer animals come around to hunt and so on. So they make the decision that they have to tap back into their customs as the Anishinaabe people and travel, move around, be migratory. Uh, mostly for the sake of land regeneration and renewal. You know, they got to go to the other food sources and let the land where they've been residing replenish and so on. But also, they want to explore what's left of the land to the south after this blackout, and they want to reconnect with their original homeland on the north shore of Lake Huron. So it's a quest story, you know. This community decides that they're going to go on this big, uh, I guess, journey of discovery over the course of the summer, and they encounter some um, interesting, dangerous, enlightening, and so on, things along the
0: way. And so what is it about the post-apocalyptic genre that got you interested in writing uh, in this
1: Uh, uh, area, I guess? That's a good question. Uh, You know, it's a combination of things. Um, When I was younger, I I was really interested in some of the post-apocalyptic and dystopian novels I read in high school English. You know, books like The Chrysalids and Lord of the Flies and Brave New World, Fahrenheit 451, 1984, and so on, right? Mm -hmm. I always really liked how those stories imagined a different kind of future, Based on the actions of the present. And from a dystopian perspective, it was all, I always thought those books as, you know, criticism of our current state of affairs and how the outcomes could be bad if we don't, you know, fix things that we're doing in the present and so on. So that always really resonated with me, you know, mostly the opportunity to imagine a future. Uh, and so, The main, I think, source of inspiration for Moon of the Crested Snow was a big blackout that happened here uh, in the eastern part of North America back in 2003. You know, I experienced that through when I was staying in my home community. Um, I was living in Toronto at the time, but I just happened to be back visiting when that blackout happened. And although it was scary at first, uh, I was with family and we realized that, you know, we were surrounded by resourceful people. And that we didn't need electricity because a lot of our community members knew how to hunt and gather and, you know, keep ourselves safe and warm and so on. Uh, And, you know, that perspective of what I thought was the end of the world, this blackout moment, was really, I think, painted with a more positive and enlightening brush. And I reconsidered what I thought of dystopian and post-apocalyptic fiction because of that moment, right? And about a year later, um, I was back home in my home community of Wasaxing, visiting with my grandmother. And we were talking about that blackout that happened a year before. And I, I reminded her, I was like, yeah, a lot of people thought that that was the apocalypse, that that was the end of the world. And she said to me, well, you know, we've had the end of the world so many times. You know, like our people have been forced from our homelands. You know, our children were kidnapped to go to residential school. You know, practicing our culture was illegal. And this long list of things that happened in Canadian history to Indigenous people. And she said that was the end of the world for us so many times. And that was really eye-opening for me. And that really, I think, um, inspired me to try to put my own personal... uh lens on you know the post-apocalyptic or dystopian genre so it was really like reading what the so-called classics were and reimagining them through the lived experience of indigenous people having survived apocalypse and being resilient as a whole so you know there's there's some great uh, indigenous uh, writers who have explored this genre too like Demoline, Harold Johnson, uh, Louise Erdrich, and so on. So it's a it's a really cool sort of genre of literature, definitely.
0: And I guess uh, what has uh, the last uh, few years uh, have told you about the process of reclaiming and revitalizing culture?
1: Yeah, well, like the, the pandemic really has forced us to look inwards you know, on a personal level and on a community level. And I think it reminded us uh, what's important about the things we need to hold on to and how we should really bolster those ideas around identity and culture and so on, right? And, And for me, I longed for a lot of those gatherings and cultural celebrations that couldn't happen. Because of the pandemic and, you know, raising kids, uh, I wanted them to be a part of those things. And and it was really tough that we couldn't do all that. So, you know, it, it really inspired me to tap into my own experience and remember some of those things and try to pass them on to our kids and so on. But more broadly, you know, I was I was kind of inspired in the earlier days of the pandemic when, Um, there were total lockdowns and people found different ways to come together to support each other, right? And and one of those discussions was around food security, which I thought was really interesting because, you know, trucks and trains weren't running food into cities and towns, into the supermarkets. So people started thinking about other ways to feed themselves. And, you know, there was, uh, I think, a revival of gardening practices, and people discussed coming together to create community gardens and so on. And I was really encouraged by that. And, and, and I think I wanted to tap in. I think I wanted to explore some of that um, in, in my writing as well. And of course, you know, things deteriorated during <laughs> the pandemic and, and they still are deteriorating in many ways, even though like everyday life has more or less returned to normal. Um, but those moments are really opportune for us to reflect and and think about how we can hit the reset button and maybe try to live in a good way with each other as neighbors within our community. So those are the things that I hope people remember. And in Moon of the Turning Leaves, you know that sense of community is what has helped the characters in the story survive. And it has really carried them through this new end of the world and the subsequent uh, regeneration that follows. So yeah, there are a lot of parallels between writing the book and living through the pandemic.
0: Anything more to say before we wrap up?
1: Oh, just thankful for your questions. And I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me about it. Uh, We just encourage people to, you know, seek out as many indigenous voices as they can in literature and in the arts more broadly. And, I think we are seeing a really powerful revolution of Indigenous voices uh, speaking truth and creating beautiful things that we can all connect with and learn from. So, uh, chamiigwech. Thank you very much.
0: Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong for Rediswak. Today, I'm speaking with Adrienne Adams, talking about her poetry. And so, welcome, Adrienne. Thank you, Jeannie. I'm honored uh, for you to have me. So, the last time I interviewed you was about your author reading series, Wolf's Voices. So, what's been uh, new for you these days?
2: Um, I had uh, a chapbook published by Above Ground Press in November um, last year uh, called Redheads, uh, which I'm quite proud of, which was really exciting for me. And I recently read... uh, Above ground press is uh, run has been run for many many years and distributed across Canada uh, by Rob McLennan, and I recently read at his factory reading series in Ottawa Ontario um, and and met him in person which was really exciting he's a wonderful man um, does a great service to the poetry community in general through his blog and his writing, and his um, press, as well. He's a wonderful writer. Um, so I was very honored. The um, chapbook has one of my paintings on the cover from a tomato I grew, from seeds I saved, so it's all very meta, and then um, eight of my poems inside. Um, so I, I uh, in 2021-22, after my mother passed away, I took some Uh, poetry classes with Dr. Lerushawai as well as uh, Dr. Suzette Mayer took some writing classes. And so I have uh, projects that I developed during those classes, Um, met some wonderful students, more wonderful writers, just um, expanding. Um, When my mother passed away, it was obviously quite um, traumatic, and so I just had no spoons. So Wolf Voices has mostly been sleeping uh the past couple of years um though um People's Poetry Fest kind of wrangled and convinced me to do a pop-up in uh at the People's Poetry Festival this past spring um but I was very grateful we got an anonymous donor who sponsored the event and the um kind of effect of, of that being anonymous, that I didn't know who had donated the money, and so it felt like it could have been anyone, so it felt like a huge um, voucher of support from the community, and let me tell you, it feels really good to pay artists, um, pay poets and writers, and pay them what they're worth, um, rather than just relying on donations, although We are so grateful over the years for all the um, donations from all the audience members and also for the um, donations of the collective members the last two, three years it ran of their time and the poets and writers and comedians themselves. It was really amazing. So um, people have been telling me for years to focus on my own writing. And so I finally did when my mom passed away. I kind of, yeah, have been focusing on my own writing and uh, I'm feeling more recovered now. The pop-up kind of happened maybe when I wasn't quite ready for it. Um, So that was the whole reason I had to be wrangled into it, I suppose. But um, it went really well. And, you know, some of the comments we got was that it was like, sacred space, and, um, people just seemed really grateful to have it back, um, so that's definitely, uh, been taken to heart, um, yeah, and then I also recently read at Flywheel, uh, which is really exciting and honored, I, I read at Flywheel back, I think in 2016 or something like that, um, so I haven't read there in years, um, and it was great to read um, and have a bit of a discussion uh, it, it, about mothering and, and wolf voices and the chat book. And um, I've been published in the Mothering Anthology that was put out. It, it was scheduled sort of pre pandemic and then the um, phone that's published by Inanna Press and edited by um, Ann Sorby and Heidi Groban. And it's not othering, so the othering is emphasized. And I had a poem published in there that I originally wrote as sort of a manifesto for wolf voices um, called I Speak, uh, which is, I guess, about, in a way, um, the ways that we all mother each other uh, in encouraging... Our endeavors and creative projects, and just that the ways that we do and can and all perform acts of nurturing for each other, uh, regardless of whether we are biological mothers or not. And so that definitely fit in with the, the mothering anthology theme. Um, and I guess I kind of see Wolf Voices as being that for the community. So when my mom died, I just didn't have a spoon. It was just. Um, my mom was also my best friend, uh, so it wasn't just losing my mother, it was losing my best friend and my COVID cohort and, like, all of this... Was, um, was an amazing woman. Um, yeah. Who would have never called herself a feminist, I guess, but who was very supportive and... Uh, um, definitely, by example, lived her truth and so therefore taught others to live their truth as well and very supportive of me and all my projects, um, even if she didn't always agree with me. So I think that is, you know, one of the definitions of true love. That's the whole um, agree to disagree and, like, move forward and, I don't know. I mean, we have agreed on some things. It's just, you know, you're never going to agree
0: with anyone on everything. Uh, do you have a poem you can share today? Yeah. Um, so this is a
2: more recent poem um, that I've long been obsessed with fairy tales and have written fairy tale poems for a long time. So um, it's called Snow Violet. But where is the fairy tale of the good mother? The one who sent Snow White off into the forest to pick mushrooms and upon finding Snow dead, instead of flight evil bird slice of ham, Mom carves her own heart out, feeds it to the copulating hunter, and nine months later gives birth again in a flower bed. The one of the grandmother passing all the gifts of blood and meat and bread down the throats of her daughter, then granddaughter, protection against the weariness of wolves in a hearty act of love on her dying bed. The one of the strong and agile rock climber that mounted her daughter's hair to the summit and insists she come down off her high horse out of the teenage tower of self-imposed suicidal isolation tactics, find her own freedom horse and just ride. The one who makes candies out of the dreams of wishes, cooking up thin fingers of charcoal gingerbread up out of the cupboard of dread, out onto the living room table in the middle of the forest and says, eat, eat. Your brother will be home soon, and you still have not had your fatty fat fill. The one who writes your name over and over again into the spinning book, singing life on spiny spindly legs, urging you to climb higher and higher as rose vines up over the towering castle in the sky, and then rest and rest, rest, rest. until all is reposited into a kingdom of your own making, waking, earth and shack-shaking. The one who breaks your heart so bad in her leaving that you climb into your own glass coffin and stop bleeding, stop breathing, stop living, until some wind whisper of a dream of the memory of her loving you finds you kissing life all over again, charming princes into believing that maybe, perhaps someday, somebody will love you as well as your mother did again.
0: Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong for Redis Block. I'm here with a guest uh, director with a production that will be part of Downstage Theatre this uh, November. So, welcome. Can you introduce yourself and say a little bit about yourself?
3: Uh, hello, everyone. I'm Said Askaria. I'm an uh, Iranian professional theater director. And uh, right now, I'm an MFA student in theater studies at the University of Calgary. And I'm working. Uh, and, and, and analyzing the role of a the theater and integrating immigrants into the Canadian society.
0: Okay. And talk about the production, All Good Things Must Begin. It's about climate change?
3: Yeah. This project is about the climate change. And it's a, cl- a collaborative uh, project between Downstage Theater and uh, ICAI.
0: So tell me about working with the playwrights and how to make their vision uh, become uh, alive on the stage.
3: Uh, in this project, uh, the main concept uh, is climate action. And we will have uh, eight different plays, and two directors, me and Claire, and each of us direct four plays, and uh, and we will have a different design for each play. For example, uh, we will have movement piece and uh, other areas for each of the play. Yeah.
0: And so, what's it been like working on this project? How long have you been working on it?
3: Uh, Right now, just we decided to uh, to uh, what is our idea right now and we will start our results from November 14, November 14, fifteen and sixteen and we will share our show with audiences and November seventeen.
0: And tell me about your experience in the drama department at the University of Calgary.
3: Uh, working in drama department is a great opportunity for me as an immigrant artist to connect with uh, Canadian art community, and Canadian culture. And uh, it, it helped me a lot to understand how, how I can work in this new context, uh, in this beautiful country, in Calgary. Yeah.
0: And what is it about the topic of climate change that drew you to this project?
3: Uh, you know, I, I believe that uh, climate change is really important issue right now. Uh, in Canada and in the, in the whole world, because I see that that the result of the changing the weather each year. Uh, for example, this year uh, we we lose many of our natures in uh, Alberta uh, because of fire and the uh, weather and uh, climate change. So I think it's re- really important to work on this topic with uh, different tools like theater uh, because theater can be a, a tool for Uh, social works, and helping on people's awareness about the different things. And I think it can be helpful for people here to know more about the climate action and what they can do and what they should do to to help our society in this issue.
0: Okay. And tell me about the different plays and uh, working with the actors in this production.
2: Yeah, so, uh,
3: I cannot say what is our place right now, uh, but we will have, we will work with, uh, different actors from different culture and background in this project. Uh, we will have, uh, four, uh, actors, uh, four Canadian actors, and also we will work with three immigrant actors, uh, from different countries like, uh, India, and Ukraine, yeah. So I think it's a great opportunity for us to know each other better and know different perspective about this issue.
0: Okay. And I guess uh, what's it been like to work with a professional theater company like Downstage?
3: Uh, Sorry, pardon. Can you ask your question again? Uh,
0: What's it been like to work with a professional theater company, Downstage Theater?
3: Oh, yeah. Uh, As I said, I'm an immigrant artist in Canada, and I work with Canadian artists at the University of Calgary, but uh, I came here last year and it's my first chance to work with a Canadian artist outside of the university, and I think it's a great opportunity for me to connect better with Canadian artist cabinet in Calgary and uh, wonderful artists in Down the Stitch Theatre because always I know always they have wonderful and unique ideas.
0: You've been listening to Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Tune in next month for a new episode. Visit www.cjsw.com for more information.